Thank you, Ed. Can you take a moment to pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come together as your people, to be under the authority of your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And Father, as we consider what you are saying to us this morning in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, I pray that you would provide comfort, encouragement, that you would draw us to deeper levels of faith and humility and submission to Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who may not know our great God. I pray that you would open their eyes that they might see the sufficiency of Christ for forgiveness and life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we say and how other people interpret what we say are not always the same thing. There are many times I'll say something and I'll think, okay, now that person, they get what I'm saying. They understand what I'm talking about. But then as time goes on, it's pretty clear that that individual or that person had no idea what I was trying to communicate. This happened frequently during our ministry in Ghana, West Africa, as missionaries. Even though we shared the same language, oftentimes what I was saying and what people were hearing were two very different things. And sometimes they came at the worst possible times. So we lived in a, the backside of a village. It's always extremely hot. And one day we found out that there was going to be a restaurant uh, starting up in the city about 10 minute drive and the restaurant was going to have air conditioning. Now that might sound like a big deal to you, but for where we were in the backside of that village, that was a big deal. I was excited about this. It was going to be a Lebanese restaurant. So they were going to have something other than chicken or fish. So this also was a big deal. And I was excited to take my wife on a date to the new restaurant that had air conditioning. And so we went, it was a Friday night. And again, I was just super thrilled. I'd been, we'd been in this country now for two years. And this was our first kind of modern experience, if you will. And so the lady comes and she says, can I take your order? And I've got this menu and I'm so excited. And so I asked her, I said, ma'am, I'd like to order a shawarma with fries. Now you know what a shawarma is, right? It's this like little Mediterranean wrap thing. I said, I'd like to order a shawarma with fries. And she gave me kind of a funny look. And so I said, "Uh, do, do you understand? She said, yes, I understand. And so with that, my wife and I enjoyed a good conversation and we waited and we waited and we waited an hour. And I'm really hungry and I'm really excited. And so finally... Our waitress comes and she's got on this plate a wrapped shawarma. And I'm so excited, but I look at the plate and something is missing. I said, ma'am, where are the fries? And she got a big smile on her face. She said, oh, friend, open your shawarma. 
And so I unpack the shawarma and I open it. And sure enough, it was literally a shawarma with fries inside. And it had been about an hour. And so I'm looking inside this shawarma and there's these sopping wet fries, maybe eight or nine of them. And my heart just sinks. And she said, I made it just the way you wanted it. Thank you for that. And she laughed and I told my wife, I said, honey, I want to go home. And she said, Micah, why would we want to eat at home when we can? I said, no, 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 not, not. I mean, like America. Home. <laughs> I want to go back home. Oftentimes, again, what we say and how people interpret what we say are not always the same thing. Now, that might affect a meal, but sadly, it often takes place within the context of the church. So we hear and use phrases like in Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And we say, yes, good stuff. Live worthy of the gospel. But as time goes on, it's pretty clear we don't understand what that means or really what that looks like in our day-to-day lives. So Paul writes this letter from his prison cell to this dearly beloved church in Philippi to urge these suffering saints to live worthy of the gospel, to live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. But what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Well, that's what the rest of the book of Philippians is all about. So as we open up chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 together, we will see that to live worthy of the gospel, to live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, here's what it looks like. It looks like pursuing loving unity through humility. To live worthy of the gospel, we must pursue loving unity through humility. Now, here's how chapter 2, 1 through 4 works. In verse 1, we see this if phrase. If we have life together in Christ, verse 2, then we must pursue love and unity with one another. And verses 3 and 4 tell us how. By embracing the way of humility. So let's look at verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement... In Christ. Now, this points back again to 127 through 30. The word so can be also translated as therefore. In other words, in light of what I've just said, I'll look back at verse 27. Let's see what Paul said. He says, Only let your manner of life, the whole of your conduct, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, to live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, remember he's in prison now, I may hear of you, but you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
In light of this exhortation, yes, they're suffering. But Paul exhorts them, live worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Side by side, united in heart and soul and mind, laboring together so that the kingdom of Christ is advanced. So that the gospel is marches on. And then he begins in two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now this if is not expressing doubt or uncertainty, but rather he's driving home an important point. He's saying this, if the gospel blessings that I'm about to remind you of are true, and they are, then they must shape how we live as Christ's people, and specifically how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And so the blessings that we see, they're true and present realities in the life of the church. And these realities form the basis then of this exhortation to pursue unity and love. So the first blessing, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, I don't know too many people who struggle feeling overly encouraged these days, but we can take heart. Because there is encouragement in Christ. Remember, they're suffering for their allegiance to King Jesus. They're seen as a threat to society because they won't embrace or fall in line with the ideas, values, and beliefs of the culture. Things don't change, do they? And he's saying, look, if there's any strength in Christ to press on despite suffering and despite adversity, there is. There is. There's encouragement in Christ. Think of the promises that we have in Christ. The promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal reward. That the sufferings of this present time cannot compare to the glory that awaits us. We have the promise of an imperishable and undefiled inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. Take heart. We have these promises. Think of the provisions that we have in Christ. We have the indwelling presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit who assures us in our times of doubt, who enables us to bear the fruit of Christ-like character and conduct, who empowers us to boldly serve even in the face of persecution. We think of the never-ending sufficient supply of God's strengthening, sustaining, and sanctifying grace. So that we can say with Paul that we have all sufficiency in all things at all times to abound in every good work. That is ours in Christ. We have hope in Christ. We know that a wise, sovereign, all-powerful, all-good God is orchestrating all of the events and circumstances of our lives for our ultimate good, which is Christ-likeness. When I think about this encouragement in Christ, I can't help but think of what Peter said in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
And so Paul says, friend, there's encouragement in Christ. And number two, he notes, there's comfort from love. Now, the love here could certainly be referring to the love that they share with one another as members of the body of Christ. But I think the idea here is more specifically related to the comfort that we experience knowing that the Father loves us. We have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from the love of the Father and we have participation in the Spirit. The triune God is for us and we have life in him. It is a comfort to know that we are known, we are fully accepted in Christ, eternally loved by the sovereign creator of the universe. And it's a love that we not only experience personally, but we experience even more deeply, perhaps, within the church community. In fact, when Paul prays for the maturity of God's people in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I pray that the Spirit would strengthen you with might in your inner being so that Christ may dwell and permeate your hearts by faith so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints together what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you collectively may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's comfort knowing the love of the Father. Number three, what other gospel blessings is Paul pointing to before he gives this exhortation? He points to the fellowship that we have in the Spirit. What are we talking about when we think of this fellowship, this participation? We're talking about shared life, shared joy, shared mission that we have in the spirit. It's a life that binds us together as family. We have fellowship with one another. And then number four, if there is any affection and sympathy. Now Paul has already expressed the love and the joy that he shares with this church family. It's a love that transcends all the boundaries that society would use to try to separate us. The love of the Father brings us together. We now have encouragement in Christ. We have this profound comfort and life together in the Spirit. And now there's this love that we have for one another. We share together life in Christ. Through Him, We have all of the encouragement, all of the comfort, all of the fellowship, and all of the love that we need to live worthy of the gospel. Now, friend, if you're here and you have not turned from your sin to trust and submit to Christ in faith, why would you hold on to your pride? Why would you hold on to self-righteousness? Why believe the lie that you can somehow make life work apart from King Jesus? Why would you harden your heart in unbelief when God's grace, these blessings that we cannot earn, that we do not deserve, are freely available to any who will turn from sin and call on the name of the Lord? The blessings that Paul's talking about here can be yours 
if you would turn to trust in Christ. And so Paul says, if we have life together in Christ, and we do, then, notice verse 2, pursue love and humility, or unity rather, with one another. If these things are true, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now he says, make my joy complete. Now you might think, well, whoa, 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 Paul, why are you interjecting yourself into this? Like this kind of might seem a little bit like self-serving. But think of the context here. The book begins with this powerful description of the love that Paul and the Philippian church share together. Although he's in prison, even with the possibility of execution, Paul's confident that he will continue to live. Why? So that he can labor, in verse 26, for the progress and joy of your faith. So that you would advance. So that you would come to completion. And so basically what he's saying here is, look, you know that I love you. And you know that I'm going to keep serving and keep laying down my life for your joy, for the progress of your faith. And as I do that, you'll make my joy complete. A joy that is there, a joy that is real, a joy that is a great source of comfort. But you'll bring it to completion as you pursue love and unity with one another. And so he begins by saying, Be of one mindset. Be of one mindset. Being of the same mind. So we're called here to cultivate and pursue in practice the unity that God has already created for us in Christ. Now this doesn't mean this one mind doesn't mean that there will be no differences. Okay, for example, I praise God for my brother Matt. He's a fellow pastor. He's a dear friend. And we get to labor side by side for the gospel's advance. Now, Matt and I, we have different personalities. Sometimes we have different perspectives. For example, unfortunately... Matt is skeptical, sometimes even cynical about the existence of things like Bigfoot, okay? But I'm not. That's okay. We can have different perspectives. But by God's grace, despite that obstacle, we can be one in heart. We can be one in purpose. Different personalities, different perspectives, but oneness and purpose, oneness and commitment, going after the same thing. Does that make sense here? What Paul's talking about is a unity that pursues a single-minded devotion to know and love and serve and become more like Christ. The mindset here is what he talked about in verse 21. To live is Christ. That's what brings us together. That's what enables us to cultivate deeper bonds of unity and infection. When life is about Christ, boy, there's great unity there. The mindset he's talking about is following the example of Jesus to set aside self, to become servants so that others within the body of Christ might flourish. 
so that the body might experience life. It's about doing God's work, God's way. He says, friends, you have all these blessings in Christ. We have this unity in Christ. So pursue that. Cultivate that. You might have differences, but be on the same mind. Go after the same things. He then goes on to say, possessing the same love. Having the same love. The Puritans used to call this the fellowship of the burning heart. There's this love that we have for one another. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The love that we share is one that is rooted in the Father's love for us. And as we grow in our apprehension of that love, we respond with greater love for Christ and greater love for the people of Christ. He says, friend, have the same love. Love for Christ is like a magnet that just draws us together. Doesn't matter the person's background. Doesn't matter their ethnicity. Doesn't matter about all those kind of boundaries our world tries to create. You meet another brother or sister that loves Christ and boom, you are bound with that person. You are family with that person. You can go to battle with that person because there's oneness. Not just in purpose, but in love. He reiterates this idea. Being in full accord. The idea here is being united in feeling, thought, and action. Being one in heart and soul. You see, the love that we share in Christ, it is a love that we are called to protect. It's a love that we're called to cultivate and deepen with one another. As side by side, we share in the very life joy and mission of King Jesus. And so then he wraps it up by saying, being of one mind or being single-minded in commitment and purpose. And so let's just recap what we've seen so far in verses one through two. So if, if we share life together in Christ, we do, then what are we called to do? We're called to pursue unity and love with one another. But that's easier said than done. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, that's what verses three and four answer. Here's how we do that. Here's how we cultivate and pursue love and unity with one another. By embracing the way of humility. Look at verses three and four with me. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then again, in that classic text of verses five through 11, embrace this mind. Embrace the way of Jesus. Now, do nothing here is not actually a command. It's an adjective that is describing how we live united together. And so there's a negative and positive in verse three, and there's another negative and positive in verse four. He says negatively, don't be driven by self-seeking ambition or conceit. The word there is the idea of uh, the desire for praise. 
the desire for recognition. In other words, don't let self be at the center of everything. I think it's been wisely said that the greatest obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, rather it's self-centeredness. That's the biggest obstacle that we face. The love and the unity that we are called to experience within the body of Christ, friends, it can so quickly deteriorate when you and I begin to exalt self above Jesus and the well-being of others. You've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. Someone doesn't get the attention that they feel like they deserve. They're not getting recognition. They feel like their ideas are dismissed. They feel overlooked. They feel underappreciated. Things aren't going their way. People aren't meeting their expectations. And what happens? They become bitter. They become discontent. And what's the result? Relationships that were once close. Marriages that were once sweet and loving. Churches that were once vibrant communities begin to fall apart. Selfish ambition is a deadly poison and it affects everything. Now you might recall, Paul's already said something about selfish ambition early in the letter. Do you remember in chapter 1, 12 through 18? He says, look, I'm in prison, but God's using this to see the gospel advanced. People are becoming emboldened to preach Christ, but some are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition within the church often masquerades itself as a zeal for the truth. Be very, very careful. Look at the fruit of their lives. Look at what they leave in their wake. In verse 1, 11, it talks about the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Is that what is the person's really all about? Or is it about something else? Selfish ambition can come in all different, has all kinds of different manifestations. But it is a toxic and it will destroy the unity that we are called to cultivate. And so, do nothing. Don't be driven by the desire to see self and its agenda move forward. But rather in humility, he says, consider others as more significant than yourselves. In a spirit of humility before God and others, regard the well-being of others as more important, more significant than your own well-being, than your own desires, than your own ambition. In humility, he says, count others more significant. What is humility? Well, it's not a personality type. We oftentimes think of a humble person as just this kind of gentle, quiet, they don't rock the boat kind of individual. That person might be humble, But humility is not 
wrapped up in a personality type, but rather it's a heart posture of submission before God and service to others. Jesus shows us what humility is. In verses 5 through 11, what is humility? It's submitting to the Lord by laying aside self to serve for the well-being of others. That's what 5 through 11 is all about. It shows us. Jesus demonstrates to us. He is humility in action. And what is humility? It's laying aside self. It's submitting wholeheartedly to the Lord, his purposes, his plan, his providence in our lives. It's not about us anymore. It's about Christ. It's about service, taking on the form of a servant to labor for the well-being and the good of others. That's humility. He further clarifies this then in verse four. Let each of you then look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests or the well-being or the good of others. How do we pursue love and unity with one another? How do we live as the people of Christ, as citizens of Christ's kingdom together? By embracing the way of humility. Friend, what would it look like? I want you to think about this and perhaps even talk about this on the way back home. What would it look like in your home? What would it look like in your marriage for those who are married? What would it look like in our church family? If you said, and you really meant it, it's just not going to be about me anymore. You set aside the desire for control, for recognition, you set aside your agenda, your ideals, and you humbly became a servant in your home, in your marriage, in your church family, to labor, serve, to die to self for the glory of Christ and the good of others. What would that look like if you embraced the way of humility? It would bring relationships together. It would cultivate greater bonds of love and affection. It would really look like life in the kingdom of God as he intended it to be. And so friend, if we have these blessings in Christ, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, love, then pursue unity, and love in a spirit of humility. Because, friends, that's what it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel. That's what it looks like to live as citizens of Christ's good kingdom. Let's pray.